Please turn in your Bibles again to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, this morning we'll pick up with verse 10. Galatians 3, beginning with verse 10, reading through verse 14. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And this is the word of God, which is eternally true. Now, we know from many weeks of study that the Apostle Paul is here continuing his rebuke of the Christians in Galatia for turning to good works for their justification and their sanctification. Having started the Christian life clinging to faith in Jesus Christ alone, now they're seeking to add to their faith in Christ what? Well, they're seeking to add faith in themselves, in their own ability to do the works of the law and thus earn eternal life. And Paul is seeking to blow this false faith, this false confidence, to smithereens. He says, verse 1, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? It is hard, and it is very hard, for proud and for sinful men to forsake themselves and to look elsewhere for their deliverance. By nature, man is self-reliant, not wanting to be dependent upon anyone else. Most men go through the humiliating time in their lives where they get married and permanently yoke themselves to a helpmate upon whom they will depend for much that is good in their lives food, clothing, the presentation of children and grandchildren, the comforts of emotional and physical intimacy. Most men go through this period as they go through a chore during which they are largely uh, living in a dream world. And once the task is over and they've asked the woman to marry them, and then once they've become married, any indication that they will love and cherish this servant that God has given them, quickly flies away. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm making the case that the time of dating is a time when men do lower themselves to consider the fact that it is not good that they be alone and that they need a helpmate. And so they bite the bullet and do stupid things like buy flowers, go out on dates, give little gifts, send cards... Talk about love, all right, so that they get to the point where God has given past tense them a helpmate and they can forget about ever honoring this weaker vessel again. And it's both funny and sad. And that's about the close that most men through most of their lives get to admitting their needs. 
But then comes that nasty, horrible time where we get old and where we enter what is called our second childhood. And about the degree to which we, particularly those of us who are men, are willing to go into that second childhood is indicated in America today by the little statement that you will hear from Christian older people who, talking about the period of time when they will again need someone to feed them, someone to bathe them, someone to take care of all their needs, they say about that time, what? They say, I don't want to be a burden. And so this is a good indication of how willing men are to be dependent on anyone or anything else. We don't want it. We have to go through it in order to get married, but then we forget it. And when it comes time to age and to lose the ability to control where we go, and Scripture is very clear in describing this in the book of Ecclesiastes, we are so resistant to it. It just irks us no end. And if you look outside of marriage to various other places where men are dependent on others, for instance, if you look at the work environment, you will see that a man is dependent upon another man to tell him what to do, that the man that owns the business writes him his paychecks. In fact, that there are many indications that he's not an island, he's not a rock, he's not alone. All right. But if you, if you bore into his psyche and you listen to the, mu- the music that he loves, what you'll find out is that every day, week after week, year after year, many of these men repeat in their minds something similar to that old song, take this job and, and they know that at any point they can turn to their boss and say, I'm out of here. And that gives them comfort to the humiliating situation where they're taking orders day after day and dependent on this person for support. In other words, I'm making the case that men don't like to be dependent on anyone. As a matter of fact, I would characterize many marriages, even of Christian men, as efforts on the part of the man to never in any way allow himself to be needed by his family. I mean, do you understand? He goes to work, and then he works late, so the family eats without him, and then he comes home, and the wife goes to bed without him, and what is he intimate with? Well, you all know, he's intimate with his computer. I was saying to uh, somebody this last week that they've done studies that have found that uh, wives have exactly the same adversarial relationship with their husband's computer as wives whose husbands have committed adultery have to the woman they committed adultery with. They use the same language to refer to the computer. They have the same emotional attitude towards it. Last night I asked Mary Lee to come over and look at something, uh, read something on my computer, and, and she was resistant to even you know, looking at my computer. Instead, she wanted it printed out so that she could hold it in her hands. Now, I'm sure that it wasn't because she viewed it as a usurper of of my affection, because, of course, I'm perfect. (laughs) Otherwise, how could I preach? And that's a lie. (laughs) So here's men. We all love 
to be independent. And we might go through dating, but that's a concession so that we can be more independent, so that other people can serve us. And then in marriage, we cultivate the independence of our children and our wives to us. And then in old age, we really don't want to be tube-fed because we don't want to be a burden on anyone, which, of course, sounds very altruistic and self-giving until you realize that it's just so that we avoid the humiliation of having to be dependent. Now, I ask you, if the entire life of an American male, and I'm, I'm talking to men right now, if the entire life of an American male is aimed at independence and lack of dependence on anyone or anything, how do you think we will enter heaven and cling to the cross of Christ? I mean, do you think all of a sudden this man that has perfectly cultivated his ability to never need anyone will humbly and simply cling to the cross of Jesus Christ? You see, this is the reason that Christians view suffering as a gift from God. Because suffering reminds us who and what we are. And who and what we are are extremely needy and weak people. I was noticing that the man behind me had as much trouble as I had, honestly, in finding Jonah. And I, I, I said to him as I went up, the reason we were having trouble is that Jonah's four pages in 2000. It's very short. And it's buried in the Bible. And you know something? As I tried to find Jonah, you know what went through my mind? What went through my mind was, oh, come on, Tim. You're a pastor and you can't find Jonah? Why? Because here is a tiny little picture of the fact that I am a needy, fallen human being. I don't know my Bible the way I should. Okay? I remember a number of years ago when... The church I worked for provided me a home, and because they provided me a home, they, they sometimes thought they didn't have to give me any money. And I mean any money. <laughs> and uh, I had a good friend in town who owned the True Value Hardware store, and he and I were very close. He went to the Baptist church. And one day I went over there, and I sat in the back room, and I said, Kurt, I just can't believe it. I have to get more money from my church. And Kurt looked at me and grinned and he said, well, he said, just trust the Lord. And I got so angry that he would say that to me. And he said a few more things. I went back to my office and sat there and I was just getting red in the face alone in my office. And all of a sudden it hit me that the reason I was getting red in the face was that here I was, an independent, uh, fairly young, healthy, white male in America, the richest nation in the world, and I had to go through the humiliation of being dependent on others and ultimately on God for the provision of my needs. In other words, I wanted pay to be a form of justice and not a form of love and 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 dependence. Do you understand that? I did not want to have to go to God for my needs. I wanted to have them supplied without my ever having to go to God.
Now, let me ask you, a man who spends his life cultivating independence, independence, he spends his life cultivating it, does that man have a religion? And the answer is, oh, yeah, he has a religion. What is the most commonly cited verse in the Bible that isn't in the Bible? And you see this all the time if you have eyes that watch for it. I mean, just in the last couple of weeks, I've seen it, you know, as the good book says, and then they'll quote this verse, which doesn't exist. This is the religion of this man. What's the verse? Come on, you all know it. How many times, I mean, really, how many times have you seen, as the good book says, the Lord helps those who help themselves? And it doesn't matter if you tell them it's not in the Bible. It is in the Bible. Why? Because that is the religion of the American male. The Lord helps those who help themselves. And yet, brothers and sisters, nothing could be more contrary. To Jesus Christ. You know, I read to you our text this morning, and every single time I speak against the Roman Catholic Church, many of you get very uncomfortable because you think I'm dividing Christians. All right? And my wife keeps reminding me, I have to tell you that. I read a ton of Roman Catholic publications because when it comes to politics, when it comes to life issues, when it comes to knowledge of culture and literature and and plays and music, I would die if I couldn't read Roman Catholics because they're so knowledgeable and so wise on those issues. But when it comes to the gospel, I don't read Roman Catholics. So it's not that I don't love them or I feel insecure. It's because the Roman Catholic Church does not teach the doctrine of salvation through grace. And you know one of the ways you know this? Do you know what St. Jerome, who did the Vulgate, okay, the original authoritative Roman Catholic Bible, do you know what he said about the text we're reading today? Where it says that Jesus Christ became a curse for us. Do you know what he said is the proper way to interpret that? He said that, again as in another text we studied a few weeks ago, that the Apostle Paul here was sort of giving us a riddle, sort of a joke, sort of a fairy tale. And that Jesus Christ did not become a curse for us, but that the Apostle Paul was giving us a larger truth, but the truth wasn't that Jesus Christ became a curse for us. Okay? But that rather that Jesus Christ became like a curse for us. Remember I said, as a father is very different from father. Well, he became a curse is what it says. And to change that, he became like a curse is completely different. Why? Why does the Roman Catholic do this? Because the Roman Catholic Church, again, has the religion of the man who says the Lord helps those who help themselves. Because the Roman Catholic Church teaches that as we love Jesus Christ, we are changed. We have the love of Christ infused into us, the righteousness of Christ infused into us, not imputed. Imputed is a completely foreign thing that is placed in our account. But infusion is where day by day, in every way, we become better and better. Until the point where either in this life or in the next purgatory, 
we finally reach the point that, that, that we can be accepted by God into his heaven. And that is not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ became a curse for us. And again, if Jesus Christ became a curse for us, we are then shoved right back into the position of saying, nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. Do you see that? We don't go light candles and crawl up the cathedral stairs in Mexico City on our knees. We don't make pilgrimages halfway around the world. We don't do all these things, the the penance and, and, and the auricular confession and all these things, hoping somehow that if I'm a good enough Catholic, all right, that God will accept me. But we say, He, your Son, Jesus Christ, became a curse for me. He hung on a tree. And I am dependent entirely on him for any hope of entering your presence, God. And when we make bold to come to the throne of grace through prayer, day in, day out, we don't come to him saying, Father, this past 24 hours I've been good enough to warrant you to listen to me now. We come to him confessing that we, outside of Christ, are sinners, but that in Christ... We have His righteousness. And so we are, the Bible says in Hebrews, bold to enter the throne of grace. We boldly enter. Now, brothers and sisters, again, this goes entirely against the religion of the natural man. The natural man's religion is the Lord helps those who help themselves. But that's not biblical religion. Biblical religion is, if you live by the law, what? What does our text say? We're under what? We're under a curse. Why? Well, it says there and it says in the book of James that if you're going to live by the law, you're going to what? You're going to have to keep how much of it? You're going to have to keep every single bit of it. In James 2.10 it says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of The whole law. In other words, God does not grade according to the inflation of the Ivy League schools. Where what? Something like 40% of their grades now are A's. You say, well, that's so disgusting. (laughs) All right, God doesn't grade on a curve either. where not 40% are A's, but you have A's, B's, C's, D's, and F's in proportion to the population of the class. That's a curve, right? All right, but God doesn't grade according to the grade inflation of the Ivalese. He doesn't grade according to the curve. God says that if you get 99 of the 100 questions right on the test and you put the wrong answer down for only one, that you are damned eternally. That's God's scale. It says, whoever keeps the whole law 99% and yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of it all. And you say, well, that's unreasonable. God should grade on a scale. I say, who are you to question God? He made you. If he declares that to be his standard, he has absolute authority, and that is his standard. 
So you have a choice. You either accept that the Bible is his word and that it reveals truth to you, or that you're going to go find another word, like maybe the prophet by Cahill Gibran, maybe Norman Vincent Peale, maybe Robert Schuller. you know. I don't think you want Mohammed. The Bible tells us that there's absolutely no hope for us who seek to be self-reliant. Many people were fond of quoting all the early, uh, all the early fathers of our nation proving that they were Christians and that this is a Christian nation. I want to warn you about something. If you think the early fathers of this nation were Christians, you need to study again the whole doctrine of self-reliance. Because if you read what they actually say about the Christian faith and about God, what many of them actually say is that it is useful to have a religion because it restrains the wickedness of the populace. And brothers and sisters, God is not a tool to be used to give us a better America. God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And one day, following death, you and I will stand in his presence and give an account. And if we come in with a good civic religion, the Lord helps those who help themselves. If we come in saying that we have had the righteousness of Christ infused to us as day after day, we've gone to confession, we've gone to Mass, We've lit candles. We have done our good deeds. God will say, get away from me. I never knew you. Because why? Because God is pleased to lift high, not us, but his son. God is pleased to have the satisfaction for our sins be the righteousness of Jesus Christ in his life where every single thing he did was perfect. He never, ever transgressed against the law. Not that one little point. He never failed. He is the spotless Lamb of God. And then, as he died, he was lifted up on a tree and he became a curse. And you say, what's the justice of that? And I say the justice of that is God's justice. God was pleased to make his son a curse because he loved us so much that that son became our payment for our sin. And you say, well, that seems kind of wacko. A just God wouldn't do such a thing because Jesus Christ does not deserve to suffer. He was perfect. And I say to you that this is what, in the Old Testament, Moses, lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, pointed to. This is what Jesus, when Nicodemus came to him at night and said, how can a man be saved? This is what Jesus pointed to. The Son of Man, he said, must be lifted up, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And here we have the description of this. And it says what? It says that Jesus Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, verse 13, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. We do hate to be reliant on anyone or anything besides ourselves. And we do cultivate independence. But men and women, the independence that we cultivate is absolutely opposed to the life of faith. Because the life of faith 
is clinging to Jesus and bringing nothing in our hands. And this is why the Christian, when he works for a man and is dependent on that man for a paycheck, works even when that man isn't present to see him working. Because the Christian knows that it's good to be dependent on others because it reminds us of our eternal dependence on Jesus Christ. The Christian is a fool in the eyes of the world. The Christian doesn't use religion to have a better society. The Christian uses the blood of Jesus Christ to cover himself as he stands before a holy God. Now let me ask you a question. Does this make sense to you? What was it like for Jesus to be made a curse for us? Do you remember what the Bible says about Jesus when he became our curse? Do you remember that it says that he went into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray? And do you remember that looking at the next three days that would come to him, where he would bear the sins of the world, do you remember what it says about him at that time as he anticipated entering those days? Do you remember that it says that he cried out to his father in the garden, saying, if it be possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And then it describes the condition he was in, in his body. Do you remember the description? It says that he was in such torment that what? Yeah, that he sweat blood, that he sweat, as it were, blood. And what was our Lord anticipating? He was anticipating being lifted up and made a curse for us and being put into the grave, being separated from his Father. Now, we make such a big deal out of the physical punishment of the cross, and it's one of the most uh, insidious lies. Certainly, the cross was terribly painful, but, you know, tens and tens and tens of thousands of human beings have gone on a cross. There are people down in Mexico and South America in the Roman Catholic Church today who do this every Easter. Uh, they have themselves crucified, the flagellants. So the issue with Christ, even though the cross is painful, the issue isn't the cross. The issue was that Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, who was the perfect, spotless, without blemish Lamb of God, bore upon himself the sins of the world. He who had never had the slightest division from his Father, not the tiniest alienation from his Father from all eternity, bore upon himself the sin of the world and cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You think of the most tender relationship of a father and a son in this world, and it is infinitely less than the relationship that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, had with his Father. And as he bore the sin of the world, as he became a curse for us, he was alienated from his Father, and his Father forsook him.
And anticipating those moments in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. And he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And what about you? Where do you stand before God? In independence and self-confidence and self-reliance and autonomy and pride? Or do you stand in the blood of Jesus, the Son of God? Think about this. If your pride keeps you from taking the righteousness of Christ as your own, if your pride causes you to try to improve yourself so that God will accept you, stop and consider that the tiniest failure, the most insignificant violation of God's law in your life will make you guilty of every single bit of that law. Then think about Jesus. Jesus became guilty of the entire law. That's what was happening, that he wanted to be taken from him. He bore the sins of the world. If Jesus, who is omniscient, he knows everything, as he walked to the edge of that chasm, sweated great drops of blood, and pleaded with his father to take that cup from him, what is your position as you look into eternity, not under the blood of Jesus Christ. If Jesus, who is perfectly wise, did everything he could and sweated great drops of blood to avoid those days of torment, how do you face eternity of torment with no concern? Did you get the point? What would a holy God do to someone who despised his son? What would a holy God do with someone who had proclaimed to him from the word of God the truth that Jesus Christ became a curse for us that we might become his righteousness? And they turned to it and they spurned it and they said, that's not for me. I'll be hanged if I'm going to be dependent on anyone or anything else. I will work. The Lord helps those who help themselves. God will add to my efforts. And in time, I will be worthy of the presence of a holy God. How would God view such a person? You know, the world can be separated into two groups. One group is the group that looks to the cross of Christ and writes hymns like, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. The shadow on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering. And sin. And you can go on and on. In the cross of Christ, I glory. And then, 
on the opposite side, there are those who look at the cross and despise it. Annie Laurie Gaylor says this. She says, many of us find the Christian torture symbol offensive, just as we would find any ugly thing displayed in this ostentatious manner offensive. It is akin to displaying a hangman's noose or an electric chair. Or, a few years ago, in the pages of Newsweek magazine, they summarized the way many people look at the cross in this way. If I can find it. Clearly, the cross is what separates the Christ of Christianity from every other Jesus. In Judaism, there is no precedent for a Messiah who dies, much less as a criminal, as Jesus did. In Islam, the story of Jesus' death is rejected as an affront to Allah himself. Remember, when I was in Hyde Park at Speaker's Corner, and the Muslims came up to me, you worship Jesus, you know, he's crucified on a cross, what a weakling! In Islam, the story of Jesus' death is rejected as an affront to God himself. Hindus can accept only a Jesus who passes into peaceful samadhi, a yogi who escapes the degradation of death. The figure of the crucified Christ, says Buddhist Thich Nanyat, is a very painful image to me. It does not contain joy or peace, and this does not do justice to Jesus. There is, in short, Newsweek says, no room in other religions for a Christ who experiences the full burden of mortal existence, and hence there is no reason to believe in him as the divine Son whom the Father resurrects from the dead. But on the other hand, we come to Scripture and we read the Apostle Paul saying what? In Galatians 6, verse 14, As for me, I will boast only about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So self-reliant man, what hope is there for you? Well, your hope is to despise your desire for self-reliance and self-determination and making yourself acceptable for God and to cultivate a spirit of dependence. And that spirit of dependence must start at the cross where Jesus became a curse for us. And as you place your faith in him on that cross... He redeems you. It's the language of the marketplace. In the ancient world, it was the stores, the malls. And Jesus Christ purchases your soul. And you are born again by the Spirit of God. So what say you to Jesus Christ? What say you? The Lord helps those who help themselves. Or on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. And I cherish that old rugged cross.
do you like to be self-reliant? I pray that God will strike you. That he'll give you leukemia or cancer. That you'll lose your job. That you'll funk your orals. That you'll get laid off. If he will use that to break your pride so that then you hear the truth that he became a curse for us so that we might become the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father God, I do pray this morning that you will destroy the pride of sinful man. That you will change our hearts. That we might not hope in the works of our hands and the righteousness. That we ourselves can muster pathetic as it is, but that we will cherish 